read recently, and I'm sorry, I can't cite my source, which sometimes is uh, one of my failings. I don't remember where I read stuff, but I read somewhere recently how much of the Christian life is a balance of two maybe seemingly different ideas that need to be held together. I don't know if you've thought about that. I had thought about that before. That statement where I'd read that reminded me of that, that many truths in our Christian life are supposed to be held in balance. We are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We are supposed to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us powerfully to do his good will. We are supposed to live for today and not think about tomorrow, but we're also supposed to live for eternity. We're supposed to be selfless and not think about ourselves, but we also are given the incentive of rewards in heaven for the things that we do. We are to have leaders who serve. We are to speak hard truths with love. We have liberty and freedom in Christ, but we are also slaves of Christ. We must have both faith and works. When it comes to preaching, we try to strike that balance between doctrine and application, what we know and what we do. Theologically, big picture with God, we have the balance of God's sovereign choice with human responsibility. We have God's love and God's wrath. We have the Trinity, which is the balance of one God and three persons. Life is a lot of balance. The Christian life is a lot of balance. I want to look with you today in the book of 1 John and examine some of the balances that are pictured here about the Christmas life. This is uh, not necessarily something we turn to for Christmas text, but I, I think it does serve us well on Christmas. This is kind of expanding the series of Pastor Zach's Christmas series, the idea of Jesus, in him was life. So read with me here from 1 John chapter 1. We will read the first four verses. Starts off with Christmas words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. The Christmas story right there. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, the incarnation. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. He speaks of these Christmas ideas of the word of life becoming flesh, being made manifest to us, the word of life. Pray with me as we begin, as we understand more about this word of life. God, we pray that you would help us to see truth from your word here this morning, that we would see the life that is found in Jesus and the balance 
of his life, our life, uh, that you teach us here in your word, that you expect of us. God, we pray that you would help us to understand and, and do what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the beginning of John's epistle, First John. And so this introduction has, has truths that have its fingers throughout the whole rest of the book. And so in, in preaching on just these verses, we're, we're getting a really kind of a, a taste of the whole book. So we'll be moving around a little bit. Uh, but we are going to look here at what John introduces in these verses as two different lives, two different things, two different aspects of life that are offered in Jesus the Son. Two different kinds of life that Jesus offers. First of all, there is eternal life. John speaks of Jesus with the description of eternal life. In verse 2, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. So this is a, a, a person. The eternal life was with the Father. And this echoes his other introduction to the Gospel of John, where we read... Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is, he's describing Jesus not in terms of being the Word, I guess he does do that at the end of verse 1, the Word of life, but now the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So eternal life is summed up, is, is pictured, is personified in Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. That's what we see here in the introduction, but the rest of this book bears out that's not just the person of Jesus, but it's also something that's offered to those who follow Jesus. We read in 1 John chapter 5, again, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Eternal life is something that is given to us. John is writing to believers, those who follow him. And this is, first of all, something that is given and, and discussed by John as, as an assurance, something that we can have hope in and confidence in. Again, John is writing here in this epistle primarily to believers. So a few verses after the one I just read, John, 1 John 5, verse 13, he states clearly, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, believers already, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is different from his other statement in the Gospel of John, where he, he states, I write these things to you that you may know that you may have life. This is written to those who know this already to give them assurance. So the, the picture of Jesus being eternal life and that, that being offered and given is, first of all, assurance. And that is why John starts off here calling people to have fellowship. And in verse 3, he is saying, we proclaim this, that you may too have fellowship with us. Now this isn't just a kind of a casual get together, let's hang out, let's have a potluck and have a fellowship. Uh, there is something more at stake here in, in John's world. He's writing to believers who are being tempted to be led astray by false doctrine. There's a specific heresy that's going around the early church at this time, and, and John is calling 
believers, people who believe these things, to hold on to what they believe and not separate from the fellowship of the body of Christ, what they believe about Jesus. Don't leave it behind. The specific false teaching at that time we, we call Gnosticism, we understand as, as Gnosticism. It is, was a denial of Jesus being fully human. He was, he was a God, maybe he was a spirit, but he did not come and take on human flesh. They, they thought of everything physical as evil, so God could not taint himself with a physical body. And John is intending to specifically address that. That's why he's clear from the beginning, this word was made manifest to us, I saw it, I touched it, I heard it. He's being very clear about what he's talking about, but he's doing that so that people would stay in fellowship, and not just with the local body, but with God the Father and God the Son, as he goes on to say at the end of verse 3. But of course, anytime we talk about the gospel as believers, as an assurance to ourselves, it still is an invitation. The good news of Jesus Christ is an invitation, first of all, to those who know these things to make sure that you genuinely believe them. I think John is writing with the understanding here that there may be some in the fellowship who have heard these things, and they say they believe them, and they may think they believe them, but they are the ones that may be led astray by this false truth. The false teachers knew these things, or they said they didn't believe them, and yet they have been led astray. So the invitation is for any of us who say that we know Jesus, the Son of God, to make sure that that is what we genuinely know and believe, that we have repented of our sins and put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection that brings us the life that we will continue talking about. But also to any who are here, any who would have been recipients or hearers of the epistle in John's day who know that you don't believe this, who know that this is not who you are, that you know that you do not have eternal life in Jesus. This is, first of all, an invitation for you to know that eternal life. Jesus offers that in himself because he is eternal life. The other kind of life that Jesus offers, first of all, eternal life and life now. Again, a balance. He offers eternal life, but he offers something to us right now. The gospel could have been communicated to us and given to us, and it could have just said, this world is, you know, it's kind of all over, you know, whatever happens, God's not concerned with him, maybe he can't control, but at least we would have eternal life in the end, when death came. We would know that we could spend eternity in heaven and not hell. And that could have been all that the gospel was. And that would have been a great mercy. That would have been more than we deserved. But God doesn't just offer us an assurance of where we will spend eternity, eternal life in heaven as opposed to hell. He offers us life now. He cares about our life now. That is what the rest of this book is about. It's, on one hand, about assurance of where you will spend eternity, but also a specific call and an expectation that those who follow Jesus live 
in Jesus now. They live a different life now. The next verses after this introduction, this message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, in him is no darkness of it all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we say we believe these things about where we're going when it's all over, we must live differently now. God cares about our life now. He cares about how you live your life, the, the do's and do nots that are clear in Scripture. But he also brings life to you. He brings joy and relationship and fellowship to your life that you would not have outside of Jesus. Fellowship with each other is fellowship with the Father. We see that in verse 3 and again here in verse 7. We have fellowship, a different kind of life now, if we are living differently. There is life in Jesus. There is there's not life in just following rules. There's not life in a code of morality. There's not life in just doing Christian things. There's not life in just church attendance. Where is there life? There is life in Jesus. In a person, in, in a relationship why we read from Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 2 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I live I now excuse me at the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me God's love for us and our love for him is directly tied to how we live our life John copied down the words of Jesus in his gospel, John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We do not just find life in obeying commandments for the commandments' sake. We find life in loving Jesus. And out of that flows us living a different life. That is because our hearts of sin are able to love many, many things. And they will only allow us to walk in the light when we love the light instead of all the other things that we love. We will not obey and follow and walk in the light and live a different life until our hearts love something greater than whatever has captured it. Whatever idol that we are prone to worship. We must love Jesus to live a different life. <clears throat> I want you to, to think for a moment if your life bears out the life that is found in Jesus. Maybe it does in different areas better than others. But could you take one aspect of your life, whether it's how you, how you behave or act or conduct yourself in the workplace or in school, how you relate to your spouse, how you speak to them, how you speak to your kids or your parents, what your hopes are for your kids or your grandkids, 
what you do to accomplish them or try to bring that about? Could you take your entertainment diet or what you do with your free time? Could you take any of these aspects of your life? Could you drop them into an unbeliever's life and would they look any different? Are there parts of your life that do not bear out the life of Jesus? That you are living differently because you know Jesus? Or that Jesus is bringing life to that part of your life? Does Jesus shine light on those areas of your light? Does, does that aspect of your life lead you to Jesus? lead you to him for wisdom, for joy, for strength, for hope. <clears throat> Life has been different for us for a while now, right? A year ago, don't think any of you would have been wearing a mask right now. We would not have had the, the seating spread out over here. We may still have had the imbalance that tends to happen by everyone sitting over here. Life's been different for us. Relationships have been harder to keep up. Fellowship has been hard to sustain. There is still life in Jesus, even when you're in quarantine, even when you're in isolation, even when you can't visit your, your loved ones, or you can't be visited by your loved ones. There's still life in Jesus, even when our holidays are different. Or how you do your job or go to school is very different. There is still life in Jesus. I don't think that many of us probably subscribe to what John was combating here, the, the philosophy of Gnosticism. Many of us probably don't do our devotions out of a Gnostic book or anything like that, or we, we would put our name to paper saying Jesus did not have a physical body. But there may be a practical type of heresy that we're prone to. Again, maybe not whether or not Jesus was fully man. We may have a practical heresy where we live like there is not life in Jesus. There is not life to be found in the person of Jesus or living life the way he tells us to and the way he gave us an example to. We may live like there is life in other things. That's just as much of a, of a heresy, a practical heresy as, as maybe Gnosticism. We are living life like there is life in hobbies or life in our Christmas presents or there is life to be found vicariously in the lives of your children or grandchildren. Or there is more life to be found in the scripted lives on TV than in what Jesus has for you today. Are you living that? Is there a practical heresy maybe that is working out in your life? <clears throat> We are supposed to walk in the light. We are to love the light. To do that, we need to know the light. 
heard from a, an author that we cannot love, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. We are to love the light. We must know the light. We must know this Jesus. So if you will with me, I want to take a little bit of a deeper dive into more of the, the doctrinal side of things. If we're balancing the doctrine and application, this is more of the doctrine section. I want to look at some of the balance that was on display of Jesus' life. This tells us about who this Jesus is, who this light is that we are supposed to love, who we are supposed to walk like. There are many different aspects of Jesus' life. There are many different things that are described about him. Even his names are, are different, and they tell us different things about who he is. It's like a, a multifaceted gemstone that, depending on which way you look at it, you may see something different. I want to draw your attention here to the way that Jesus is described by John in this book. We read in some of the previous sermons in, in Matthew 1 that Jesus was called, on, on one hand, he was called Emmanuel because that means God with us. We read also in Matthew chapter 1 that he was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Luke one tells us about another name that Jesus was supposed to be given. Luke one thirty five says, Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Son of God. And that is how he is described here in 1 John. Verse 4, With the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I want to unpack with you a little bit why is Jesus called the Son here? Why did John choose to use that word, that his Son, as opposed to just Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, or any other descriptions that are used of Jesus, the Son of God? There's this great truth on hand here of, of the incarnation. We, we sing about it, especially at Christmas time. King of kings, yet born of Mary, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. The heart of the incarnation is Jesus being the Son of God and the Son of Man at the same time. Now, the phrase the Son of God and the Son of Man sometimes are used interchangeably by the different gospel writers. Sometimes they're used distinctly from each other. Uh, in the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're similar in how they're written. Uh, use a lot of the same stories, the same parables. Uh, so that's why we call them the synoptics. They're different from the Gospel of John. But in the synoptic Gospels, these phrases, the Son of Man and the Son of God, actually at first glance, on, on a basic level, don't speak of Jesus' deity. I don't know if that makes sense at first glance. Uh, but the phrase, the Son of God, specifically, was not used just of Jesus. It goes all the way back to Adam. Adam was first called the Son of God. It was not a claim of Adam being deity. It was a claim that he was from God that he was created in his image. He was different from the rest of creation, but he was still created out of God. He was a son 
of God, not a claim to deity. That was later used to describe the whole nation of Israel. The nation of Israel were the sons of God. They were chosen, they were special, but they were not in any way deity. And then that was later used to describe David. But then when David and Israel did not fulfill everything that was expected of the son of God, in the time when Israel was in captivity, they began to hear prophecies about a son who would come. And a lot of the expectation in these prophecies that, that the son would come it was not an expectation of incarnation. That wasn't really on most people's radar. They, they really thought of this person who would come and be the son of God, who would fulfill everything that the others didn't, the son of God was an expectation of kind of like a, a superhuman, a, a hero, maybe like a Greek mythology, demigod, hero level, not any claim to deity, but someone who would come and do what Adam and, and Israel and, and David didn't. So a lot of the people who were expecting the son of God to come did not have an expectation of, of God being, or the Messiah being deity. One of the authors uh, I was, excuse me, reading said that the expectation of the Messiah was more about a conquering son of David rather than about the incarnation. But then we get to John, and John wrote differently than the other gospel writers. In the gospel, and that's reflected in the epistle that we're reading here, John handled the, word, the phrase the Son of God a little bit differently, and, and that reflects that in Jesus' time, some people started to get it. Some people started to get that Jesus claiming to be the Son of God was more than just a hero or a superhuman, but that this was someone who was coming from heaven, someone who was God himself. And that's reflected in John chapter 5. After Jesus performed a miracle, we're told that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Some of his opponents were starting to get that early in his ministry. Some of his disciples probably didn't even get that till the end, but some of his opponents were starting to get that. So when Jesus asked Simon Peter in Matthew chapter 16, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That may have been an expression of his faith that Jesus was deity, uh, but it may have just been that kind of superhero expectation. We don't know Peter's heart at that point. But John gives us a picture with these phrases that God is both, or Jesus, sorry, is both God and man in the same person. I don't think I'm telling many of you anything new. That's a, a doctrine that we hold to, we believe that, that's essential to the Christmas story, to the gospel that we believe. But there is more and deeper things to understand and know about how Jesus is described and understand about how he lived his life and how all these things work together. And when we look at them, we see those different facets and aspects of Jesus' life. We know him more, we can love him more, and therefore live in the light more. Let me take one step further with you, if you will, with me. 
and I'm sorry, one more qualification. We should love, we need to know Jesus more to love him more, but it is also essential that we keep affirming what we know to be true, what we believe. As I said, Jesus' life, Jesus' personhood was on debate here in the book of 1 John, and that's why John was writing. And the early church was dealing with a lot of heresy for a couple hundred years until they finally nailed down at what was called the Council of Chalcedon exactly how they wanted to describe God being Jesus being truly God and truly man at the same time. But heresy is not something that's ever fully settled. It was settled in words, but it continues to be fought in our own minds and hearts all the time. What we believe about Jesus, who we believe he is. Do we believe who he says he is? It's not something that we check the boxes one time and then we're done. We have to continue to believe Jesus is who he says he is. And there are contemporary issues. There are contemporary heresies. We were walking in Barnes and Noble just the other day, Christy and I, and in the religion section, uh, one of the, the best sellers that is out, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a bestseller, but one of the books on the shelf from a popular author in the scholarly world. He's a very smart man, very well-researched man, but he is a very skeptical man. And he wrote a book called How Jesus Became God. The idea is that Jesus was just a man who through the workings of the church or through philosophy and and myth over time was elevated to the status of deity. You probably heard that before, maybe in a popular work like the Da Vinci Code. There is serious theological academic study behind some of these ideologies. And it is present and available. And it's winning people's hearts. So we're not above heresy any more than the early church was. We have to continue to hold fast to the truth that we know. All right, one more thing I told you I was going to go to. One more level deep with this doctrinal part. The balance of Jesus' life was not just between him being fully God and fully man at the same time, but him being the Son of God and God the Son. Does that make sense? No? Son of God and God the Son. The phrase God the Son is not a phrase we find in Scripture. It's a phrase that uh, comes out of our theological studies, systematic theology, and it derived out of the early churches wrestling with the doctrine of Trinity. And it became orthodox, standard Christian belief to understand the Trinity as three persons in one Godhead. And those three persons are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That's an idea we understand in Scripture. And then we have this other idea of Jesus becoming the Son of God. It's important that we understand that Jesus did not become God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, at Christmas. He became the Son of God when he became a baby and he fulfilled all the expectations 
of what was understood in the Old Testament to be the Son of God and the prophecies of the Messiah, and he became the Son of God. But Jesus has always existed as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And when we understand that in the incarnation, and we understand that that is the Jesus who comes to give us life and live in us, that has another level of meaning for us. We aren't just getting the Jesus who became the Son of God just 2,000 years ago. We're getting the eternal God, the Son. Let me bear that out a little bit more. On Christmas Eve, our choir sang a song called, Who Came When Jesus Came? It's a good song. They asked the question, who came when Jesus came? And they answered the question with words from Isaiah. They sang to us, he is our wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, the great I am. And those are all true, especially because they're in scripture. And those are all different facets, different aspects of understanding who Jesus is that we could turn and look at and understand deeper and love deeper because of. But the beginning of the verse that that is quoted from, Isaiah 9, 6, before we get to, he is our wonderful counselor, what do we read? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Why a son? Why is it important that we see God as a son? Why a son? Why not a daughter? Or a brother? Or a spouse? Or the father himself? Or an impersonal force? Or just the Bible? Why a son? I don't think I will fully answer that for you today. There's a lot to be understood by myself and probably all of us and will not fully understand until eternity, but there are some things that we understand about sonship. The role of the son means that there is a father, right? For God the son, to be God the son, there is God the father. And that means that he has eternally existed in a relationship with a father, with a father who cares for him, and who loves him. That's eternal. That's not just what happened at Christmas and then from then on. That's an eternal status. For him to be the son means that he has eternally been submissive to his father. Not just when he humbled himself and took on flesh and then became obedient to death, but has eternally been submissive to his father. He's eternally been We could say it even this way, that he's eternally been limited. Jesus, God the Son, couldn't be God the Father if he wanted to. He has filled a role that he is given for all eternity. Submission. But he does that with joy and with love. He he fills the role he's given. And he does it for the glory of his Father. We read in John chapter 1 that he has come to make known the Father. His role as God the Son is to bring glory to God the Father. That's important for us. Because we understand that we are supposed to be like Jesus. We are called 
sons of God like Jesus. And all the things that are true about Jesus' sonship, not just Jesus as the son of God who came at Christmas, but God the son who has existed for all eternity are true for us. That there is relationship there, that there is submission and limitation in our role, but there is joy and fellowship in fulfilling that role. And there is purpose in bringing glory to God the Father. That was diving a little bit deep, if you will. Come back up with me, get some breath here. Let's wrap these things up with some ideas of, of application. We should then live a life of balance. We see the balance pictured in Jesus' life between those different ideas, God the Father, I'm sorry, God the Son, the Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, balance in harmony. There are things that we must live in balance here. One of the main things that boils down to the Christian life, a matter of balance, is the balance between knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. And I like what one author said. He described it as Christ for us and us for Christ. The doctrine and the application, the the knowing and believing and the doing. Knowing who Christ is and what he did for us, the knowing, and then us for Christ, living that out in our lives. author I read, Kevin Van Hooser, said, we need to know scripture in order to answer the key Christological question, who is Christ for you today? Not that that changes day to day, but that we continue to affirm what we know to be true and believe it. The quote goes on, but also because we need to know the Bible in order to respond rightly to the follow-up questions, who are we for Jesus Christ today? How am I going to live my life differently today? How am I going to live in the light. This requires balance. A seesaw is no fun if it's imbalanced, right? It's actually quite dangerous. Have you ever been, been on one of those when that's been off balance? Balance in our life, in our physical bodies, is attained by our inner ears. Have you ever studied that's fascinating how the, the fluids and the fibers work to give us our orientation? But it's not just one inner ear. How many inner ears ears do you have? You have two. They have to work together to give you balance. A plane has two wings so that it stays in balance. We are warned about the imbalanced life when it comes to knowing and doing. Knowing without doing is a danger. We are warned that that is being puffed up. We're warned that that may not be genuine faith. You may have faith, but if you have no works, that faith may be dead. On the other hand, we're warned about the doing without the knowing. Jesus expected that he would see people at the end of time who said, we did all these things for you, Jesus, but he said, I never knew you. And the reverse implication is true. You never knew me. We must have a careful balance of knowing and doing. I know what to do because I've read books. What to do when a lion charges me. I know not to shoot for the head or the heart, but to shoot for the front legs. 
because it cannot run on broken legs. I know that. I've never hunted lions. And I would be a fool to say I really know these things, but then have no practical experience. And I'd be an even worse fool to, to know these things, but then if I found myself in Africa at some point with a lion charging me, to not do them, right? I would be a fool to shoot for the head if I knew that was not right. We must know and do. The rest of this book, 1 John, uses the word know 34 times. It's important that we know and we believe the right things. And again, this is a First of all, a call to remember. A call to affirm what we believe, remember what you already know to be true, and hold fast to that. It's also, again, a reminder of the assurance that we have because of what we know and believe. But in Scripture, what we know, what we believe, is never pictured as something that is settled something that we're, we're done with, that we've, we've checked the boxes, we know and believe the right things, and so the knowing and believing is done. That's, that's never the view of Scripture. We're told that we must grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We must know him more. This is a time of year. We're coming up on the beginning of a new year, a time when many of us take stock of our lives. We think, what do we want to do differently next year? I invite you to consider how you can know Jesus more next year as being one of your top priorities for 2021. How can you know him more? How can you see him in the word more? We don't get to be John where we get to see him with our eyes and hear him with our ears and even touch him. We don't get to be that, but we have his word. How can you get more of that this year? As I mentioned, there are reading plans that we just put out for you to check this day uh, for, for 2021. Specifically to know Jesus, the person of Jesus. Study the Gospels. The life of Jesus is put on display for us in the Gospels. How he thinks, what he loves, what he says is true and is not true. Now those are not red letter. They're not more important than the rest of Scripture. But if you want to love the person of Jesus more, I encourage you to read the Gospels. There's a study, uh, a Bible reading plan right out there that is 30 days to get through all of the Gospels. Maybe check that out. Memorize Scripture. Hide it in your heart. Meditate on it. I will echo Wyman's regular recommendation of the Bible Memory app. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Bible Memory app. It's just Bible Memory. It used to be called Scripture Typer. Fantastic tool to help you Memorize scripture. Listen to sermons. That's not going away. We're going to have one every Sunday this year. Come ready to listen to them, to know Jesus, understand Jesus more. And I would encourage while you're doing that, come with the right expectations. Talking about balance, sermons are a lot of balance. A balance between the doctrine and the application, a balance between 
saying hard things and saying things that engage you and don't offend you and shut your ears. Come with the right expectations. Every one of you probably likes different types of sermons. Some are topical, some are exegetical. We use a variety of them here. Uh, we err on the side of more exegetical. Uh, but come ready to hear what the sermon is going to give you. We should be ready to do. Not just know and believe, but then also do. We are to be sons of God. In John's other book, the Gospel of John, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, sons of God like him. Now, we're not going to ever attain the, the deity aspect of being a son of God like Jesus had, but we are supposed to be like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, to think the things that Jesus thought and say the things that Jesus said. We're supposed to be like Jesus. C.S. Lewis understood this. He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, the clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. And it is doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose than that we become like Jesus. We must know and then do. There's way more than I could say right now about what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live your life. I encourage you, go finish reading the rest of 1 John. You can read it probably in about 15 to 20 minutes. There are some specific things that John gets to, how we should do the doing of what we know and believe. Some of the ones that are specifically in here are having fellowship. We should pursue fellowship with one another. That's the reason that John is writing these things. Verse so that you too may have fellowship with us. Seek out fellowship with the body of Christ and with Jesus. I understand, fellowship is hard right now. Some of you who are, are hearing this have not been able to be in our church doors or be with the gathered body of Christ for weeks or months. And that is hard. And we need to continue to be creative as, as a body of Christ to keep that fellowship alive with people who are isolated from us. That's a challenge to us. There's a different type of challenge we're talking about with fellowship. Is there anything other than COVID? Anything else that is preventing you from fellowshipping with the body of Christ and with Jesus himself? Are there things that are a part of your life that are in darkness and not the light that is keeping you from fellowshipping with Jesus? Is there any of that practical heresy working itself out in your life where you are not living like there's life in Jesus? Get rid of it. As the next paragraph says, if we say we have not sinned, we're making God a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pursue joy. The other reason that John is writing this, verse four, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, the word our, our 
our joy, could be translated your joy. But it makes sense either way. He's not saying, I'm writing so you would know these things and then I get all the joy I want. No, he's, if, if what he says is true, if we believe these things and we hold fast to them together, we have fellowship, and then our joy is complete. If you're lacking in joy, it is found in Jesus. Don't seek it anywhere else. And it is given to us specifically, temporally, physically in the body of Christ. Again, we know that's hard in the days we're living. But we must seek joy in the fellowship of Jesus. We should do what we're supposed to do. We should walk in the light because of what we know and what we believe. And because of the Jesus that we love. We should love him. And we should adore him. Pray with me as we close. God, we pray that you would give us the strength to love you. It does require strength to believe what you say is true and to, to not love other things. Help us to know you so that we may love you more. And help us to do the things that we know to do. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.